morning. This is Melinda Eitzen. Welcome to the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm a divorce lawyer and I deal with all things related like prenups and postnups and I've been doing that for 29 years. And I like doing that even though that sounds strange because I like helping people through a hard time. And I'm hopeful that this podcast will also provide a resource to help you. And today I have a wonderful guest, one of my favorite people in the world, my partner of 23 years, Lisa Duffy. Good morning, Melinda. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. We've been together a long time, haven't we? A long time. (laughs) Our relationship is longer than most people's marriages. That's correct. (laughs) We know that from what we've been doing all these years. Oh, well, one thing we thought we might talk about today is prenups and preparing for marriage maybe to have a a more successful marriage or a more successful divorce if that's how the marriage ends. Uh, And that's true. A lot of uh, couples that are thinking about getting married, they engage in premarital counseling, but they don't always think about talking about those hard topics that are also finances, asset debts, credit card debts, what's your credit score. A lot of people get married without really knowing a lot financially about the other person. Well, you know, you talked about premarital counseling. It seems like there's less of that going on now because a lot of that was being provided by churches. It's true. And less people are attending church. So there may be people who aren't giving any thought or having any direction by a third party to have those conversations. Well, one thing that's very common and that happens all the time and and should be expected is if one of the spouses is either has already or is going to inherit significant assets from their family, either by way of estate planning or, you know, inheritance or family limited partnerships, uh, you know, trusts. And so if that is an issue with one of the spouses, then you, you, can pretty much expect the family um, is going to want a premarital agreement. And that's always a very touchy subject with the spouse, but it really shouldn't be because in Texas law, and in Texas, um, the Texas Constitution uh, talks about what separate property and separate property is anything that either of the spouse has as prior to marriage or receives by gift or by inheritance or acquires with separate property or an asset acquired by separate property. So, and that's without a prenup, right? That, that's, that's just the law. That's absolutely, that's the law. And so families that have taken the time to go through that extensive estate planning really wanna make sure that their assets are protected as their family members move into marriages. And it, it's something that should be ex- expected because it is their separate property. Um, what, what, Frequently happens though, there's different types of premarital agreements. Um, Some of the premarital agreements provide that the couple will never have a community estate at all. You see those- Let me interrupt you for a second. So when people say to me, hey, I want a prenup, they say it like that means something, Mm -hmm. right? But to your point, you're starting to explain there's more than one thing to do in a prenup. Absolutely. There's different types of prenups. There's prenups that can literally do away with any kind of community estate. Um, And so that during the marriage, you won't accumulate assets together, but the assets that you either have by virtue of the premarital agreement will grow 
free of any interest being claimed by your spouse. Um, there's also premarital agreements, um, and you see these a lot with first marriages when there's not a lot of family involvement or a family inheritance through trust or other inheritance vehicles. The premarital agreements just want to set out uh, prior to marriage what each spouse is bringing into the marriage. You know, what, what are the assets that they have on the date of marriage? What are the debts each spouse has on the date of marriage? And provide for, specifically in the premarital agreement, what's going to happen to the growth in those assets that you had pre prior to marriage. So identifying. You're talking about, let's identify what I had before we got married and what you had. Which is very smart, you know, mm -hmm. to just create a catalog and an inventory of um, of what you had. And people ask me all the time. I mean, one almost one of the first questions when someone calls in there and they're doing a consult on a premarital agreement, they'll say, "Are these things really enforceable?" And the the question is, absolutely. If the premarital ag agreement is drafted in conformity with the Texas statutes that govern premarital agreements they are enforceable and they will be strictly enforced by the courts and your premarital uh, provision can even have a provision that if either of the spouses tries to challenge it later you have to pay the other spouse's attorney's fees or there can be other financial penalties for attempting to challenge the premarital agreement so in texas we allow people to contract right, right? it's basically a contract that's correct and we are going to hold them to it that's correct and you shouldn't go around signing things that you don't expect to be held to. That's correct. And, and one of the provisions that makes uh, the premarital agreement enforceable is that each party should be represented by an attorney. And so that's, that's key. I mean, I, a lot of times I hear, well, we want to use one attorney. You cannot use one attorney. Or does my, does she, they don't really want to get an attorney. Well, they need to. If you want it to be enforceable, everybody needs to have a uh, an attorney and there needs to be a full and fair disclosure of financial assets. And that's something that um, can really be a benefit to both parties because you really get to understand what assets and debts the other person have. Yeah, so that would be a drag to mm -hmm. not know somebody had huge debts. Right, or a lot of credit card debt or other yeah, debt that you weren't yeah. expecting, you know. And so it's some of those conversations about, and you also exchange tax returns. There's, so those conversations are difficult to have, but it's the, the early or on, I think in your marriage, you begin to have transparency and exchange information and learn to ask those questions, I think the more solid your, your marriage can be because you really learn how to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, as part of the premarital agreement, um, you know, you get to exchange tax returns. I can remember when I asked my husband a long time ago before we got married, how much money he made, he was incredibly insulted and wouldn't tell me. And I was just like, <laughs> so seems relevant. It's not well, but it's difficult. It's, these are just difficult yes. conversations to have. And, and there's a skill to learning to how to have them, mm -hmm. you know, especially around the context of you're getting married. You know, it's just one of those things. Everybody has a different approach about how transparent they really are with their own finances mm -hmm. or their income or things like that. It's just, it's kind of growing pains in your relationship though. Yes. So I hate it when they call and they say, we need a premarital agreement. We don't know what we want in it because we didn't know that there were choices and we're getting married next month. 
So yes. how much time do we need to really do this properly? Um, you know, you can do it in a month. We have done it even shorter. It's not ideal. And frankly, it just puts a lot of stress under what is already in a, a stressful situation. And it's more likely to have an, you know, to be perceived negatively if it's something that's being done, you know, as a fire drill. So let's I, not know. be walking down the aisle signing the premarital agreement. <laughs> I had, you know, someone last year on Zoom sign one on their way to the rehearsal dinner. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> not really how you want to celebrate your marriage. No, you know, so, but, uh, but, you know, back to the, the premarital agreement. So, um, in Texas, you, if you have separate property, income on that separate property, uh, income, di uh, distributions from separate property, uh, I mean, uh, dividends from separate property stock or distributions from a separate property partnership, um, those are all considered community property in Texas. So Without even, a prenup. Without a prenup. You don't have a prenup. I have my little separate property. I earned 401k at my prior job before I got married. That's correct. That 401k is separate, right? Because I had it prior to the marriage, but the growth of it during the marriage is community. Community without a prenup. And then you then that puts you in the position of tracing. And so, which tracing means that when you have to identify what happened to separate property funds after you were married and whether or not it was called commingled. Commingled means when you take separate property funds and you put it into account where there's community property funds. And then forensic accountants or other people skilled in that type of thing have to create schedules and to trace your separate property. And that's something that um, without a premarital agreement, if you're in a 25 or 30 year marriage, people, unfortunately, and it's sad, are just simply not able to trace their separate property because they don't have assets to the uh, financial statements they need to yeah. actually trace. Unless they're putting it in a banker's box and keeping it in the attic for years, mm -hmm. then the banks aren't going to have those records 30 years ago. All That's the banks correct. have been bought and sold by then. They're a different bank. They don't maintain records that far back. Most people shred their stuff now, right? Right. I've never been able to see anyone do it. Like if you're looking 15, 20, 25 year marriage, it's just very difficult. I mean, it would take, it would take um, some planning, which is what I think that, I think if going into your marriage and if you're not going to have a premarital agreement, you need to understand that and you're interested in preserving your separate property, you need to understand that you're going to have that burden. And so one of the things that you can do if you're going to not have a premarital agreement is on your date of marriage, you create a schedule of all your separate property and you create a system for maintaining those statements and for maintaining them each and every month so that you have a record and you know that you need to do that. You know, it's your burden of proof and you create a system for doing that. Some financial planners I've seen are really good. I mean, at helping you preserve that, that separate property, even when you did not have a premarital agreement. Like one thing I've seen, um, banks and, um, other financial ins institutions do is they do what's called a monthly sweep of an account. So if you have a separate property account, but it's accumulating either interest or dividend income, you could have them sweep that 
into another account, it can still be in the spouse's name, but just understand that's where the community funds are. So you're not keeping it commingled when you acquire new assets out of that account. And the reason somebody might not do a prenup is it requires both people agreeing to sign it. Right. So if the other person won't sign it, then the steps you're talking about is a way to still preserve your separate property claim, not the growth of it, because that would require their consent, mm -hmm. but the core of it to keep it identifiable mm -hmm. and separate, as separate as possible, right? Right. And a, lo and a lot of people, I mean, um, I think a lot of new couples, young couples going into their first marriage, a lot of them really don't want a premarital agreement. I mean, they don't feel they're both new in their careers. They may be earning about the same amount of money. They're, um, or, or for whatever, they're truly a partnership in that respect. And they, they really don't want to have a premarital agreement. They, they don't, don't feel the same need. Right. It's not a second marriage with grown children. Exactly. The grown children thing comes into this sometimes. True? That's very, that's when, that's the scenario where you have spouses that are on their second or third or, you know, even fourth marriage. They each have children from previous relationships. They've done extensive estate planning or they want to provide for their children. And so those are when you see those premarital agreements that, you know, where you're really not contemplating that there ever be a community estate because mm -hmm. they don't want whatever estate planning or other planning they've done, succession planning for their children. Uh, they don't want that to be compromised by claims of a spouse who, who at that point likely has their own assets also. But they don't want the grown children to worry, hey, this is a gold digger coming to marry my dad or right. my mom. Right. And so the premarital agreement can eliminate that concern. Right. We're going to, in the premarital agreement, protect the inheritance on each side. Right. Whatever they both came in with, their kids will get it. Yes. And I have no I have no problem with premarital agreements. I don't that just set aside everyone's separate property. I mean, those are I think those are smart. I think that's well thought out. I think that's nothing that anyone should feel um, you know, imposed on to agree to that. I mean, it's just it's just smart financial planning. So, so one thing I hear people say sometimes is can we have a provision that if he or she cheats, mm -hmm. they get a different deal at divorce or death than they would have? Uh, and it, absolutely. You frequently see those where if either party is uh, commits adultery or you know, they're unfaithful, there can be penalties, either financial penalties or forfeiture penalties set forth in the premarital agreement. The of course, you have to thing, prove though, it. Yeah, know. it's the proof. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm always discouraging people from that because how do you prove it? Mm -hmm. And it encourages kind of some negative surveilling of each other and paranoia <laughs> or setting people up. And usually, in my experience, an affair is a symptom of a failed marriage and not the reason that the marriage is failing. I think that's very true. That's true. But I think it's also with all the digital evidence that we have now, uh, I think that the, the infidelity is getting easier and easier to prove because yeah. it's all in your phone records. 
I mean, it's your just, phone is tracking yeah, yeah. you and you don't even know it. It tells you everywhere you've been. Mm-hmm. I know. In the old days, we'd hire the PI, right? The PI right. would follow people around. Now your own phone is following you yeah, around. Exactly. <laughs> and there's a lot of information on that phone, I think, as people just saw in that Alex Murdoch trial. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the really evidence recovered off the phones was really the key to the case. And, that, and it's hard to delete anything anymore. Right. So one thing that people aren't always aware of is the prenup can talk about what happens at divorce and what happens at death, and those could be different. That's correct. Yeah, the premarital agreement can talk about, you know, it can have provisions that provide for um, different benefits to flow to the spouses depending upon the length of the marriage. It can provide for lump sum payments, um, you know, that correspond with, longer term marriages, like on the anniversary, 5, 10, 20, 25 years, it can provide for different financial benefits if um, after there's children. Um, it can also, it can provide different penalties for like, I think we already talked about if you, um, you know, if you attempt to challenge the premarital agreement or mm-hmm. if you are unfaithful, um, you know, um, I think that there are uh, some other interesting provisions that I've seen in premarital agreements are they can, um, well, sometimes you need to apply, f- you need to provide for where, what state law is it going to apply in, which is going to be Texas. But what if the you have a Texas premarital agreement, but the couple's now living in California? Mm-hmm. So the effect of that is while the Texas um the laws of Texas will govern the interpretation of the and the enforceability of the premarital agreement. The actual divorce is governed by California. So then you have to reconcile the Texas premarital agreement with California law. So one reason people might feel differently at divorce and death is, hey, if I've been married to you for 40 years and one of us dies and that's how our marriage ends, I'm going to feel differently about how generous I want to be. That's right? correct. Than if you left me for the blonde secretary. That's correct. <laughs> that's correct. You know. So that's why they might have a different provision. Mm-hmm. If this ends by death, this is what happens. X, Y, Z money goes to the other person. Well, typically, I think the premarital agreements just that they can provide for specific financial benefits upon death, but they'll also just refer typically i think to the the individual's uh will trust and state documents the only problem with that though is you can change your will at any time that's right it's individual it's not a contract like Mm -hmm. the prenup that's right prenup we're both signing it well individual signing it they can change it every day that's probably why you don't see a lot of those provisions for financial benefits upon death i have seen some Mm -hmm. which provide for Especially if it if there's a a um, concern or likelihood that one spouse is going to be providing like late in life health care, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen some that reward that mm-hmm. for the spouse if they're. But then you know you also want to make sure that that is the best person to be doing that yeah, for yeah. the person when they're you know late in life. Well, and if there's no community, so we talked about there's different things you could do in a prenup. And one is to say, 
we're not going to build any wealth together. Mm. What I earn is mine. What you earn is yours. What I brought in is mine. The growth of it, what you brought in is yours. But then you have to have provisions for like, what if we buy a house together? That's right. And if I die, do you get the house or does, do your heirs have a right to make me sell my house? Right. So the, the, the premarital agreements can talk about, you know, acquisition of real estate and what that means. And it can have provisions that provide for things like whatever the, the house, even if it's titled in both of your names, the ownership percentages will be divided by what each of you contribute to the purchase. Or some premarital agreements will say, irregardless of who's providing the purchase money and paying the mortgage or paying the, the other payments, monthly payments for the real estate, that that, that will be jointly held property 50-50. And um, if it, like, for example, if it, one spouse is living in another spouse's separate property, um, they get provision Usually there's a provision in the premarital agreement that they'll have a life estate in that property. I see. As long as they're alive. And I wouldn't want to be kicked out of my house. No. <laughs> it would, right? Right. Oh, my goodness. So we talked about that both people need to have a lawyer. Yes. And then there's a negotiation that's going to occur. One, to talk about what are we trying to achieve in this particular prenup. Mm -hmm. And then maybe... They haven't even thought about it. They don't know the options. We have to educate everybody on what is achievable. Mm -hmm. and then they have to negotiate what it's going to be. That could be um, in person, which is my preference. Like, mm -hmm. let's all sit down together and talk it through. It could be in the collaborative process. I think it's a great option for a collaborative process. I have never seen anyone use that. Have you? Yeah, Heather? I've done several. I think it would be a really smart idea. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of people don't want to devote that time mm -hmm. to it. But it, I think it is a very smart idea to do a premarital agreement in a collaborative context. Yeah, and collaborative uh, for our audience, they would both have a lawyer. We typically also have a neutral financial professional that would help with the conversations about what does it mean, this option or that option. And and I think it is a good process. Unfortunately, what I see a lot is somebody just says, I want a prenup, whatever that means to them. They think it means something to just say that. And then they hire a lawyer and they have the lawyer send the worst case for the other person and the best case for them. And they don't even really understand what they're asking for. And they're not reading it. Right. <laughs> so, you know. But that doesn't go well. I know it's, it's important to get your client to actually read the premarital agreement. They're long. They're like, you know, 30, 40 pages. They're tedious. They're repetitive. But um, it is important before you sign it that you read it and understand what you're signing. And you mentioned earlier there might be provisions that are different if people have children, if they end up having children together. And I could see that because it's one thing to say, I'm not worried if this marriage ends, I'm independent, I'm going to go make money. It's another to think about, I've got kids. I have future kids, possibly. I don't want to be, you know, uprooted and starting over with a bunch of kids that I have to house and clothe and all of those things. And one thing that the premarital agreement cannot do is it cannot make any provision for custody of your children, how much one spouse will pay in child support, or other type of things that govern conservatorship of your children. They just won't be enforceable because the courts will always reserve 
the right at the time that you get divorced to make agreements, to make decisions that are what the court believes is in the best interest of the children. So you could never say in the premarital agreement, one spouse would get primary custody and the other spouse would pay child support and this sounds how much child support they would pay. That just would not be enforced by the courts. I've had cases where one person is moneyed and one is not right going into the marriage. And it's very common for the moneyed spouse to not want the other person to work because they're going to go have fun, mm-hmm. you know? Hey, you don't need to work, honey pie, because mm-hmm. we're going to go travel the world or do something together. But then the he, he or she wants honey pie to sign a prenup mm-hmm. that doesn't really give honey pie very much. Right, <laughs> right. But we don't want honey pie to work. That's an awkward position for honey pie. Well, that's when, you know, honey pie's got to, you know, have a lawyer mm-hmm. and not be afraid to negotiate for herself. You know, or himself, however that may be, because you have to really think about that. I mean, sometimes, you know, you do see people signing what are really draconian premarital agreements and you tell them. And it's it's kind of a sad situation for, I don't like seeing my clients sign those where I know they're never going to get anything. And And you're um, now doing a protection letter for yourself with the client, I would never sign this. I'm advising you against it. Advising you not to sign this. And, and, you know, they sign it anyway. Um, You know, one thing that you can think about, and I've, if you, you know, if you're in that position, you do usually have the luxury or you might be able to have the luxury of just saving every single penny you earn during the marriage or you receive by gifts. And you should. You know, you should let the moneyed spouse who's in this position pay for everything and, you know, just you figure out how to establish your own separate property. Mm -hmm. Because usually that same premarital agreement will say whatever you earn will also be your separate property. And then it can just be an investment or a savings fund for you if you don't have to spend that money for your living expenses. Yeah, but then he's saying, don't work. We're going to go have fun. So it's a difficult situation. But I've seen that many times. And you're right. They have to focus on it in advance, not be pressured by we've invited 200 people to the wedding. You know, they really need to plan ahead. Mm-hmm. It's an unpleasant topic. So sometimes mm-hmm. people wait to the last minute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk for one minute about what if they don't quite get the prenup done and they want to go ahead with the marriage? Is there something they could do after they're already married? Well, I think we talked about that before. You uh, you identify your separate property. Uh, you keep a count category and an inventory of what your separate property was on the date you were married. If you can save your statements from all of your mm-hmm. assets and put it in a file, mm-hmm. date of marriage, DOM is the the <laughs> you know we use that in the the firm all the time. And these were my assets on the date of marriage, and then you create a system for saving. And those accounts going forward, those statements. What about month a post-nup? after month? Postnups are you can always do a postnup, and and again they have very similar requirements. Both both spouses should, at that point their spouses should be represented by um, attorneys, and they should make full financial disclosure. And in those postmarital agreements, part in our partition agreements. The parties can divide their community estate and they can also convert separate property to community property or community property to separate property. And I think I'm getting more and more calls about people that are interested in that because they're, um, 
they're at a point in their marriage where they don't necessarily want to get divorced, but they want to have financial clarity on what would happen if they did. And mm-hmm. the, the good thing about the partition agreement is it is going ahead and partitioning your assets in a way that is acceptable to, to both parties. And then you don't have to worry about uh, what's going to happen if you get divorced financially because mm-hmm. you've each, I'm seeing this a lot. I would say in uh, 50, 60, 70 year olds that mm-hmm. are just, they, um, especially if it's a second or a third marriage where they just want to uh, be able to have separate property so they can provide how they want to in their estate planning. And it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily going to go to the spouse. I had a case where they came in thinking they needed to get divorced because the husband was a risk taker and he would make 30 million and then he would lose 30 million. And she just couldn't ride that roller coaster with him. And she said, I think I have to get divorced. And I said, well, maybe what if you did a post-nup? Mm-hmm. What if you protected yourself from the roller coaster? That's on him. Your portion you control. He can't use your portion towards the next uphill on the roller coaster. And they love that idea. And they did a post up and they stayed married. You know, I've seen it a lot when there is a, a addiction on one side of the relationship. You know, there's either a drug or alcohol yes, addiction and they yes. just don't want to be financially at mm-hmm. risk by that behavior or shopping or gambling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way to insulate your your income and your assets from potential claims mm-hmm. by someone who's struggling with these issues from their creditors. Mm-hmm. Well, prenup or postnup, we're here to help if they need us. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you great having okay. you with us. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Our tip for today. If you choose not to have a prenup or a postnup, be sure to take steps to keep your separate property separate. And the best way to think about it is do as little with that as possible. Set it aside in your own name. Don't move it around from account to account. Don't, for tax reasons, form a different entity every other year. Do not do anything, but leave it there if you can. And that will be the best way to trace it later and to still have it there. If it's a house, when you refinance, be careful what you're doing because sometimes people add a spouse to the title on the deed that wasn't on there originally and they own the house prior to marriage. So the more you can maintain the property as it was originally, the better chance you have of maintaining that separate property. And that's the tip for today. Thanks so much for being here. We're always available if you need to ask us any questions or if you want to see something talked about on the podcast, you can find me at melinda at d-elaw.com. 